Section 37 of The Complete Works of Bran the Iconoclast, Volume 12. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Section 37, Beauty and the Beast, or The Ladies and the Apostle. A synopsis of Mr. Brand's address to the Ladies' Reading Club, San Antonio, Texas. I have been asked to lecture to the ladies of the reading club, but shall do nothing of the kind. That were to admit that you require improvement, and I would not have you better than you are. We would have to clip your wings or keep you in a cage. Besides, I never saw a woman whom I could teach anything. She already knew it. I have been going to school to the ladies all my life. My mother carried me through the kindergarten, lady preceptors through the intermediate grade, and my wife is patiently rounding off my education. When I graduate, I expect to go direct to heaven. As near as I can figure it out, the inhabitants of the new Jerusalem will consist of several million women and just men enough to fill the municipal offices. I would not live always, I ask not to stay. No lecture then, but an informal talk without text or subject. A vagrant ramble through such fields as tempt us. If we should find fruit or even flowers, let us be thankful. If we encounter only briars, it will not be the first half hour we have wasted. The fact that you are members of the reading club indicates that you're seeking knowledge. I trust that you are finding it that every stroke of the intellectual pick turns up a gold nugget. But do not make the mistake of supposing that all the wisdom of the world is bound in calf. You may know all that has ever penned in papyrus, or graved on stone, written on tablets of clay, or preserved in print, and still be ignorant, not even know how to manage a husband. As a rule, people read without proper discrimination and those who are most careful often go furthest astray. I once knew a woman with no more music in her soul than a rat-tail file, who spent three laborious years learning to play the piano, then closed the instrument and never touched it again. One day I said to her, Mary, what good did all that patient practice do you? Lots of good, she replied. I used to be dreadfully ashamed to have people know that I couldn't play. And a great deal of laborious reading is undertaken on the same principle that Mary learned to play the piano, and is of just as little benefit. Many people are with books as with medicine. Imagine that whatever is hardest to get down will do them the most good. No mortal man and as the preacher correctly stated, the men embraced the women, ever yet got any permanent good out of a book unless he enjoyed its perusal. No mortal man, and as the preacher correctly stated, the men embraced the women, ever yet got any permanent good out of a book unless he enjoyed its perusal. Janot J. Ingalls says that everybody praises Milton's Paradise Lost but nobody reads it. Engels is mistaken. Everybody making any pretension to culture has read the book as a disagreeable duty, but 
That man don't live, at least outside of the lunatic asylum, who can quote a dozen lines out of it. Same with Dante's Divine Commedia and a host of other books with which people are expected to inflict their brains. Read few books and those of the very best, books that you enjoy. Read them thoroughly. Make them your very own. Then forget them as soon as possible. Having submitted to the mental and moral discipline of another, decline to lean on him, but stand up in your own independent individuality. Don't be a copy. There is on earth no more pitiable person than the bookful blockhead ignorantly read with loads of learned lumber in his head. Do not interpret too literally. What I warn you against is the habit, all too common, of imagining ourselves rich because we have counted the golden hoard of others. One may admire the Medician Venus without becoming a sculptor, or have Plato at his fingers' ends and ever remain a fool. Were I an artist, I would study with attention the works of all the great masters. But when I put my hand to my own task, I would turn my back upon them all and my face to nature. My work would then be a creation, not a copy. Did I aspire to be truly learned? I would study the words of the world's wisest, then dig for wisdom on my own behoof. I would thus become a philosopher instead of a parrot. I have been frequently called an iconoclast. As bad as the title is popularly supposed to be, I trust it is not altogether undeserved. I have striven to break foolish idols and shatter false ideals, to hurl unclean gods from their pedestals in the public pantheon. A work of destruction is not, I admit, of a high order. Anybody may destroy. It requires genius to build up. The wonder of the ancient world sank to ruin irremediable beneath the torch of a morbid dude who had rather be damned to everlasting fame than altogether forgotten. A hungry wolf may destroy a human life which Almighty God has brought to perfection through long years of labor, but destruction is sometimes necessary. The seas must be cleared of pirates before commerce can flourish. The antiquated and useless buildings must come down before the schoolhouse or business block can occupy the site. In the great cities are men who do nothing but destroy old buildings, professional wreckers of those works of man that have outlived their usefulness. They build nothing, but are they, therefore, to be condemned? So, in the social world, a man may be a professional wrecker, without the constructive ability to build a political platform on a pie crate and still be useful, indispensable. The wrecker of bad buildings does not contract to put good ones in their places, nor is the iconoclast under any obligation to find a heavenly grace for every false god that falls beneath his hammer, a saint for every sinner he holds up to scorn, a new truth for every old falsehood he fells to earth. He may, if he thinks proper, leave that labor to others and go on 
with brand and bomb, bludgeon and billhook, wrecking, destroying, playing John the Baptist to a greater to come after. A great many good people have taken the trouble to inform me that I am a pessimist. Mm, perhaps so, but I am not worrying much about it. A pessimist is a person somewhat difficult to define. The fool who smokes in a powder house, or believes that his neighbors always speak well of him behind his back, the wife who encourages her husband to pay court to other women on the supposition that no harm can ensue, the banker who accepts a man's unsecured note because he is a church member and powerful in prayer, and the servant girl who lights the fire with kerosene, then goes to join the angels taking your household goods and gods with her, are certainly not pessimists. They are only idiots. It is easy enough to say that a pessimist is a person afflicted with an incurable case of mulligrubs, one who nothing in all earth or heaven or Hades pleases, one who usually deserves nothing, yet grumbles if he gets it. But we should not forget that every reform this world has known, every effort that has lifted man another notch above the brute level, every star in our flag of freedom, every line and letter in our constitution of human liberty, every gem of knowledge that gleams in the great world's intellectual crown of glory, every triumph of science and religion, philosophy and mechanics was the work of pessimists, so-called, of men who were not satisfied with the world's condition and set determinably to work to better it. They strove with their full strength against those conditions panegyrized and poetized by the smirking optimists of their time, and thereby incurred the enmity of pedants and self-sufficient purists, were denounced and denied, belittled and belied. But, says the enthusiastic optimist, things are not what they used to be. When a college of cardinals gave Galileo to the goaler for maintaining that the world do move, when Christ cast forth the money manipulators and purged the porches of the temple of the disreputable dove dealers, when Luther raised the standard of revolt and the Puritan packed his grip, there were cruel wrongs to right. But look at us now. We've got a constitution and a confession of faith, prize rings in Parisian gowns, sent missionaries to Madagascar and measured Mars two moons. Of course we made some mendicants, but please admire the multifarious beauty of our millionaires. Who can doubt that we've triumphed over the world, the flesh and the devil? Have not the Spanish Inquisition and the English Court of High Commission gone glimmering? Do we bore the tongues of Quakers or amputate the ears of nonconformists as in old Lang Syne? Do we not run troublesome wives into the divorce court instead of into the river, as was once our wont, scientifically roast our criminals with electricity instead of pulling their heads off with a hair halter? Do we not fight our political battles with wind instead of war clubs? Have not our great partisan Palladians substituted Gaul for Greek fire? Progressing we certainly are, 
but the devil has adapted the Fabian tactics and is leading us a wild dance through unprofitable deserts. While we have been shattering ethnic images, he has been building new idols. While we have been dragging the phallus bull from its pedestal, the golden calf of ancient Israel has reached maturity and maternity, and its progeny is now worshipped in a thousand pantheons. Everywhere the false and the true, the good and the evil, the lambent light of heaven and the sulfurous shadows of hell meet and blend. Nowhere, yet everywhere, floats the white veil and flaming ensign of the modern Mokana, and we stand wrangling about the proper cut of a collar debating whether the Gadarenes, whose swine the outcast devils drowned, were Jews or Gentiles, dogmatizing anent the proper form of baptism, doubting with which hand we should tip the hat, wondering if Joseph's coat were a sack or a swallowtail, Ninety and nine out of every hundred wasting upon childish trifles and strength given us to do the work of demigods, and every foolish breath, every heartbeat bearing us across time's narrow sands into the broad bosom of that sea which hath no shore. What does the all-seen sun that has for so many centuries glared down upon this wretched farce tragedy think of it all? And yet man boasts that he is the mortal image of immortal God. It was for this trifling, straddling biped, intent only upon getting his goose head above the foolish geese, that the regent of the universe suffered ignominy and death. I sometimes think that had the Almighty cast the human horoscope, he would never have given Noah a hint to go in out of the wet. I am no perfectionist. I do not build the spasmodic sob nor spill the scalding tear because all men are not Sir Galahads in quest of the Holy Grail and all women angels with two pair of reversible wings and the aurora borealis for a hatband. I might get lonesome in a world like that. I do not expect to see religion without cant, wealth without want, and virtue without vice. But I do hope to see the human race devote itself to grander aims than following the fashions and camping on the trail of the cartwheel dollar. I want to see more homes and fewer hovels, more men and fewer dudes. I want to see more women with the moral courage to brave the odium of being old maids rather than the pitiful weakness to become loveless wives. I want to see more mothers who would rather be queens of their homes than the favorites of fashionable circles, women who would rather have the love of their husbands than the insolent admiration of the whole he-world, women who do not know too much at fifteen and too little at fifty. I want to see more men who are not a constant reminder of a monkey ancestry. Some philosopher once remarked, as between men and dogs, give me dogs. I have been often tempted to endorse the sentiment, and I am not much of a lover of dogs either. 
I want to see men who are not fops in their youth, fools in their prime, and egotists in their old age, a race of manly men to whom life is not a lascivious farce, whose god is not gold, who do not worship at the shrine of the pandemian Venus, nor devote their lives to the service of mammon, the least erect of all the angelic host that fell from heaven. I want to see men who scorn the pusillanimity of the policy prayer, who, like Caesar, dare tell graybeards the truth, e'en though it cost a crown, men of leonine courage, men of iron mold, men strong of hand and heart, who defiantly throw down the gauge to destiny, who can trample hell itself beneath their proud feet, even while it consumes them. The dream may be utopian. I much fear it will never be made a blessed reality by either philosophy or religion. We have had both for forty centuries, yet the fool has become ever more offensive, and the liar has overrun the land. Yet we imagine that because we no longer live in caves and fight naked with the wild beasts of the forest for our food, we are away up at the head of the procession, with Greek civilization distanced, and all the other times and half-times nowhere. Human development, like the earth, the sun, the stars, like all things brought into being by the breath of omnipotent God, travels ever in a circle. Savagery and ignorism, barbarism and ambition, civilization and sybaritism, dudism and intellectual decay, then once more savagery and ignorance proclaims the complete circle, that we have traveled from nadir to zenith and from zenith to nadir, when once again we begin with painful steps and slow to repace the path which carries us to the very verge of godhood and wreathes our brows with immortal bays, then brings us down, even while we think we mount until we touch a level beneath the very brute. Such has ever been the world's history and such it will ever be, until a force is found that can transform this circle into a straight line, that can blend the rugged manhood of the barbarism with the graces of our higher civilization, and give us wisdom without weakness, and culture without cowardice that can incorporate us in corpuscles in the social organism without eliminating every spark of godlike individuality, making us helpless dependents upon social, political, and religious precedent. If the car of progress travels in a circle, and history says it does, if neither science, philosophy, nor religion can deflect it from its seemingly predestined path, and the condition of their birthplace proclaims their failure so to do, where is hope? Must the human race forever go to weary round of birth and death, like Buddhist souls wandering through all that's fair and foul until it finds nirvana in the destruction of the world? Not so, for there is a hope, a blessed hope, that like a poisoning eagle burns above the unrisen morrow. That hope 
is in the union of all the mighty forces that make for the emancipation of mankind, a union of religion and philosophy, science and woman. And of these, the first is the last, and the last is the first in point of power and importance. When I reflect that until within comparatively recent times women were slaves, I don't much wonder that the old civilizations went to the dogs, that the millennium is not yet due. Trying to make a civilization that would stick without the help of women were like building a cocktail with a basis of buttermilk. God gave her to man to be an helpmeet, not a plaything. I don't think that she can help him much by going into politics or becoming a crusading she-peter the hermit while her own children need her care. But I do believe that the wife and mother, that erstwhile ignorant drudge raised by God's great mercy to royalty, made queen of the home and thereby absolute empress of the great round earth, is to be the dynamics of a new and grander civilization that can never recede. That the womanly woman, self-poised as a star, pure as the polar snows, fit companion for the true nobleman of nature, is to be the providence that will lead humanity, step by step, ever onward and upward, until our cruel age of iron is transformed into an age of gold, in which there will be neither millionaire nor mendicant, master nor slave, in which selfishness shall be considered the worst of crimes, and love the all-powerful law. Such, ladies, is my dream of the future. You see, with true mannish instinct, I throw the work of the world's salvation upon the women. I don't know, however, but it's retributive justice. If you got us fired out of the first paradise, it is your duty to find another and put us in possession. But really, with all due respect to sacred writ, I could never accept that serpent story without considerable salt. My observation and experience has been that men are much more addicted to the snake habit than are women. I gather from Genesis that after the Edenic reptile had done the damage, it was condemned to go upon its belly all the days of its life. That indicates that it was not only a good conversationalist, but had legs. Now, I submit it to you in all seriousness. Which member of the original family was most likely to see such a serpent as that? I think I should have given Adam the Keeley cure, then cross-examined him a little before laying the burden of the blame on Eve. If the latter was really the tempter, she was probably trying to reach the heart of her hubby by that direct route, the stomach lost heaven for love, as too many of her daughters have since done. The fact that Adam was not willing to father her fault proved him unworthy of his wife, and the bad example he set is too often followed by many of his sons, 
who attribute all their trials and tribulations to the patient wives, whose watchful care keeps them out of the penitentiary. Whatever may have been Eve's fortune, Adam was no great loser by being ejected from Eden, for the man who possesses the love of a good woman carries paradise with him wherever he goes. A woman's love can transform a hovel into a heaven and fill it with supernal sunshine, and her scorn can make perdition of a palace and put in all the fancy touches. Woman is the only thing extant, if Genesis be believed, that was not evolved from a solid slug of nothing. That, I presume, is why she amounts to something. Nothing was good enough, raw material, of which to make the father of mankind. But when the Almighty came to create our common mother, he required something more substantial than a hole in the atmosphere. I always bank on a boy who has a good mother, regardless of what the old man may be. The fathers of philosophers have sometimes been fools, but their mothers never. A wise man may beget dudes, or a good man, practical politicians. But it's his misfortune, not his fault. The good Lord expects no man to gather grapes of thorns or figs of thistles. I have yet to hear of a single man who became distinguished in any line of human endeavor, according to his father the credit for his greatness. Character is molded at the mother's knee, and in the light of her loving eyes is born that ambition which buoys man up in a sea of troubles, that drive him on through dangers and difficulties straight to the shining goal. The nineteenth century marks the culmination of an era of human triumphs, a brilliant coruscation of victories over the cohorts of ignorance and prejudice but its crown of imperishable glory is the recognition that woman was created to be man's companion and co-laborer instead of his chattel, his joint sovereign of the earth instead of his slave. Fronting the dawn of a grander day, her hand on guide and her brain unfettered, with broader opportunities for usefulness in boasting a nobler beauty than during the dark and dreary centuries that lie behind her like a hideous dream, such is the woman of the nineteenth century. And upon the shapely shoulders of this new palace I hang my second providence. To her loving hands I commit the destiny of the race, to her true heart the salvation of the world. End of section 37.